So you want your candidates to say, I'm going to go and ask independent scientists, what does the evidence say? In addition to listening to constituents, voters in candidate forums and in letters should be looking for that strength of independence to ask the questions that are needed to formulate a policy position, not just come forward with some dogmatic position. Welcome to the Got Science Podcast. I'm your host, Colleen McDonald, and I'm voting for science in the upcoming midterm elections in November. And in case you're wondering what the heck that means, I'm going to tell you. I'm also going to tweet about it. Then after the interview, Katie Love's going to tell us about This Week in Science History. At the Union of Concerned Scientists, we've been urging everyone who can vote in the upcoming midterm elections to please go vote for science this fall. But what do we mean by vote for science? To get into more detail about why science matters at the ballot box, I invited my colleague, Dr. Andrew Rosenberg, director of the UCS Center for Science and Democracy, to take a deep dive into what happens when science is ignored by our government and how the effects of indifference toward science have consequences for all of our lives. With Andy at the helm, the Center for Science and Democracy has been working hard over the past months to engage scientists and science lovers to get out in their community, show their friends and neighbors what's at stake for science in the midterms, and encourage folks to get involved. Luckily for us, Andy found a few minutes to take a break and chat with me about how top-level policy decisions can end up affecting your community's drinking water, about why it matters for your air quality if Environmental Protection Agency employees retire and aren't replaced, and why everyone who is an eligible U.S. voter who can hear the sound of my voice should check if they're registered, which is easy, and I'll tell you how to do that. And go vote for science November 6th. Andy, thanks for joining me. Thank you, Colleen. So the midterm elections are right around the corner. Science has been swept under the rug for the past two years. And depending on the outcome of the midterm elections, we may have a chance to get science-based decision-making back into the mix. So what, what do you see as the stakes for science in this election? Well, perhaps one of the few things I agree with the president on is that this is an incredibly important midterm election. Um, it, it's important because uh, in the first two years of the Trump administration, Congress really has not taken on its traditional role of checks and balances. It's been, uh, they have not checked the administration from attacks on science, um, and they have not come up with balanced policies or pushed for balance um, in the way that we implement uh, existing policies for a whole range of issues from public health and safety to environmental protection to worker safety and so on. So in this midterm, I believe there's an opportunity to restore what should be a functioning um, American style of government, which critically includes checks and balances, Congress being the check. When you say attacks on science, give me some specifics there. We think of attacks on science, which we've cataloged on our website, as places where science has been pushed aside 
in making a decision, not because of it making a a policy choice in light of the science, which might I might not agree with, but simply the evidence has been completely ignored, or attacking science programs and the process by which science comes into public policy directly. For example, um, saying we don't want to talk about climate change, where there's very ample evidence and scientific work going on climate change that affects a huge range of federal programs um, is an attack on science. Withholding grants is an attack on science. One example is that the Environmental Protection Agency, the they have proposed a rule um, which sounds on its face like it's about providing better information, but is anything but. It's called improving transparency. We call it restricting science. And that rule would say that the EPA may not rely on any scientific study where the data isn't fully publicly available, which sounds on its face like, oh, that's a good thing. They should make data publicly available. Except for the EPA is a public health agency, and a lot of the studies it needs to rely on are public health studies that use people's medical history, medical records. And it's not as simple as simply blacking out the names because there's good information that you can still uncover people's identity. It's their personal private information. So you're telling the nation's premier public health agency that you should not use public health studies to protect the public. That's an attack on science. Now, in fact, the Department of Interior this week has replicated that same strategy in the Department of Interior. There, it's not an issue of public health records, but it is an issue on things such as um, managing native uh, lands, cultural resources, um, religious artifacts. It's also an issue for endangered species. You may not want to make publicly available the locations for the last individuals of an endangered species. Um, so there are lots of concerns when there, uh, this administration is creating policies um, under false pretenses that this is about transparency, where really it is designed to hamstring the process of putting in place public health, safety, and environmental protections. So they're, they're taking transparency and they're using it in a way that is not going to protect right. people and people's private information. Right. I mean, I call it a catch-22 rule. Basically, what they're saying is you may not rely on studies where the data isn't all publicly available. You may not require the data to be publicly released. But if you can't publicly release the data, you can, may not regulate. So it's basically saying you're not allowed to use the data that you're prohibited from using, and therefore you can't regulate. It, it's a it's a quite cynical strategy. It was developed originally by um, lobbyists who were working to prevent regulations on secondhand smoke. And in fact, they were quite open about why they were doing this. They said, if we can get this in place, it means they will not be able to regulate secondhand smoke because we can exclude all that science. So now they've taken that forward 20-something years and said, hey, let's do that for everything. That means you won't be able to regulate chemicals, you won't be able to regulate air pollution, you won't be able to regulate water pollution that have broad public health impacts. That's an attack on science. Would it make a difference if we had more scientists 
in office? Well, it, it's helpful to have people in office that understand science and value science. I don't think that that's the, the critical element, although I'm certainly supportive of scientists who have the inclination to run for public office. I think what's more important is that you have uh, elected officials that are that have a respect for the role that science can play and should play in our public policy. And so if you think about that, I was actually asked in an interview not so long ago, how would you describe the importance of the role of science in public policy? You know, very concisely. And I said, if you're making public policy and you're not using science as part of the decision, then you're making your decisions on a wholly political basis. Who basically will has the most influence? So science provides the guide rails. It says, here's the evidence and we want to adhere to the evidence. That's why best available science is included in so many of our laws as a requirement for implementing any given statute. So in terms of the, the midterm elections coming up, there are a lot of issues that people are thinking about when they go into the voting booth. So how can we make sure that science is one of those issues? Well, we need to make science real to people on the ground where they live. Um, we can't just talk about, gee, science is important, look at all the valuable things we've invented or whatever. You know, that, that discussion might be the value to society. It needs to be something that people um, feel and respect where they live and on the issues that they care about. So an example of that is we just released a report last week about water, uh, groundwater contamination and drinking water contamination in communities all around the country, particularly on military bases, which shows that um, the level of chemicals called polyfluorinated alkaline substances or PFAS are very, very, very high compared to um, recommended levels to um, reduce the risk from a whole host of diseases, including cancer. And the EPA had suppressed a report that showed that actually that safe level was much lower than previously thought. And they suppressed it because, as in the words of one White House staffer, it would cause a public relations nightmare. Well, that's not a good reason not to release scientific information. And so there's literally hundreds of places around the country on military bases that have extremely high levels of PFAS in the water. That's a, an issue that affects people where they live. It doesn't matter whether you're a Republican or a Democrat, you probably don't want a, your kids drinking in, playing in water or having dishes washed um, that have dangerous chemicals in them. Right. I actually was reading, I don't know if you saw the article about Pease Air Force Base yes. in New Hampshire, where there's an extremely high number of people with cancer that have died that were working on that base or living around that base. Um, and it's, it, it's an incredibly important issue. And I used to teach at the University of New Hampshire. And, the, you know, it's not that this is a new issue that we didn't know about, but the EPA and the Department of Defense need to take much stronger action. Now, in that activist group at Pease Air Force Base, I have no idea what the political affiliation is of the members of the activist group, and they probably don't care. It's not a matter that is political. It's a matter of 
people's, people's lives, lives, family safety, the safety of your children. Um, and so these are issues that need to be brought forward. When I talked to representatives from Department of Defense, they said, you know, if EPA would set a real standard as opposed to just a health advisory, that would mean we could direct more resources towards actually trying to fix this problem. So there isn't anything that they are mandated to do to fix it. Right. They are not requiring cleanup. They are not even including it on the toxic substances registry. They simply have a health advisory saying this stuff isn't so good for you. And the levels that they recommended are seven times higher than the most recent science has indicated out of the Center for D Disease Control in the Department of Health and Human Services. That's the support that th that's the report they wanted to suppress. The one that said, actually, the levels are even much, much lower than the EPA's health advisory says. Um, there was only one military base that has been tested that was at safe levels in their in their groundwater. Out of how many? 150 or so. We'll be back in a minute with the second half of our interview. The Got Science Podcast is brought to you by the Union of Concerned Scientists. More at gotsciencepodcast.org. You can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, PRX, SoundCloud, and many more places where you can download podcasts. Are you wondering if you're registered to vote? Wondering if your change of address went through? Trying to figure out how to register? Well, it's super easy to find out. Just go to www.vote.org. It takes less than two minutes to register. You can get an absentee ballot. You can find out where your polling place is. Science needs you in November, so check out vote.org. I'll also be tweeting about getting out the vote, so you can connect with me on Twitter at GotScienceUCS. Now let's get back to our interview. So how do you get the EPA then to take this seriously? The EPA is saying, oh, it would take a long time for us to do something. If Congress was doing its role of checks and balances, they would step in and order the EPA and provide the funding for the EPA to rapidly um, put measures in place that would then motivate Department of Defense, which already has a significant pot of money for base cleanup, um, to clean up some of these areas. And so Congress, again, is the you know body within our government that appropriates funds, but it's also the body that is supposed to be um, addressing checks and balances in the administration to make sure that, in fact, the will of Congress our laws are faithfully carried out by um, the executive branch. And so that's not really functioning right now because everything is seen as a partisan attack. Republicans won't allow any critical hearings of the administration. Democrats really can't get through because it's seen as a partisan battle. So the EPA, are they enforcing the rules that are already in place? Well, this is another major issue. Um, there, there's been a serious reduction in enforcement staff at the EPA in particular. And while we don't have the figures yet at other agencies like Department of Interior, I believe will also be the case. The reduction in number of staff basically remove, means that there's fewer inspections, there's fewer cases brought for people who are violating the rules. And so that has a couple of effects. 
the first effect is, you know, if you live somewhere where there's a, say there's an industrial facility that hasn't been adhering to the pollution control rules, you probably want them to do so. I mean, that's your neighborhood. And that's not going to happen unless there's an aggressive enforcement campaign that says, let's go and inspect. Um, let's make sure that people are adhering to the rules. And particularly for people who are major violators, let's bring a case. A lot of people may not realize that the EPA and other agencies, um, their enforcement people are not, um, you know, low level. They are FBI trained. They do investigations like a detective would. They are looking for major cases. This isn't just to go around and, you know, make small cases on businesses. They, they are looking for those major violators that are really causing problems. And they're trying to use civil penalties to actually make sure that people are complying with the rules. Well, they have reduced the number of enforcement agents by a large number all around the country and in headquarters. And they have also changed strategy where they want to rely on voluntary compliance and compliance assistance as opposed to actual enforcement. Well, businesses know what they need to do. Um, and they can certainly, many businesses voluntarily comply. But what happens when you don't have sufficient enforcement is there's a lot of businesses that try to do the right thing. And then, unfortunately, there's always someone who figures they, the rules don't apply to them or they can get around them or they can boost their profits. And that makes it unfair for the businesses that are trying to do the right thing. They can't compete because they have to meet all the rules and somebody that might never get an inspection is getting away uh, with not applying the rules. So that's unfair too, in addition to just the environmental impacts. So is anyone held accountable well, they are held accountable, but it's difficult to do when Congress isn't stepping up to do its job of checks and balances. Again, Congress should be saying, tell me how the enforcement program is going. The, the EPA issued a report that said, oh, well, we've issued more violations and fines than, you know, in the previous year. What they didn't point out is that almost all of those violations were issued under the Obama administration. They were just collecting the fines in the first year of them. Trump administration. So they need to be held accountable for enforcing the rules and also for sufficient staffing, because this doesn't happen if you cut the staff way back. And right now, they're um, you know, a lot of senior people are leaving because, first of all, it's a difficult place to work right now, as our scientists survey showed. But also, the workforce is an aging workforce. And so, uh, you know, half of the Federal employees are eligible to retire in the next, I don't know, five to 10 years. But they're not hiring in new young professionals, which they should be. That's what these agencies really need is new talent coming in, whether it be in enforcement or it be in policy or it be scientists. You need new talent coming in. And they've stopped that supply of new talent, and they're essentially trying to starve some agencies to death. So, Andy, that's a lot of bad news. Is there any good news in here? There is some good news. Um, although you take good news where you can get it these days. It, it's, it's hard to um, keep pushing with a flood of bad news. But first of all, we'll, also what we found on our survey of federal scientists is that most scientists, yeah, there's a lot of retirements, but people are 
you know, sticking it out, working at their desks, say, I've got a job to do, it's a really important job, and nobody's going to push me out. They're still doing the good scientific work that's needed. The enforcement agents that are left are saying, I'm committed to doing my task. I mean, the public image, uh, I'm a former federal employee, 10 years at NOAA. Um, the public image of federal employees just sort of sitting around waiting to collect a pension, not really doing very much, is just totally wrong. You've got really committed people who believe in public service, believe in what they do. They're professionals in their field. Um, and sure, there are some people who don't work very hard, as there are in any business. But by and large, people work really hard to do really important tasks for the public. And they're sticking it out. They want to keep keep going. Let's say an overwhelming number of candidates that take science to heart um, actually win in November. What's likely to change? What I hope will change is that Congress will be asking um, agencies like the EPA or the Fish and Wildlife Service or NOAA Fisheries, where I used to work, they will be asking the hard questions. They will be um, demanding that um, the agencies justify actions that they're taking. They will be listening to their constituents and raising issues their constituents raise um, about why they're taking a particular action that might increase hazardous air pollutant or why there isn't a cleanup program for PFAS, as I discussed before, or why um, you know, the, the uh, um, OSHA is no longer requiring businesses to keep records of um, worker accidents for longer than uh, two years. Um, Congress should be effectively calling um, on the agencies to come forward and justify their actions and then considering those, whether there are legal changes that need to be made, whether that affects appropriation of funds for the agency and so on. So will they be able to actually do more than just raise those questions? Can they actually force some action? They can force action through legislation and appropriations. There's no question of that. But they can hold the administration to account in the court of public opinion too, <clears throat> which matters a lot leading up to a presidential election. We've seen in this administration a pretty large number of officials have to leave because of misuse of government funds or inappropriate travel or inappropriate actions. That's because, not because Congress acted, but because there was a public outcry and politically it wasn't sustainable. Well, Congress should be part of that effort. They should be saying, this is not acceptable under our laws. Um, they can refer things, of course, to the Department of Justice if it's illegal, but even more than that, they should be raising the issues and clarifying, no, the public interest does come first, not, you know, a particular um, company or industry. Um, the EPA is there to serve the public. Um, the Department of Interior is not there to issue as many oil and gas leases as they can. They're there to serve the public, and public lands are for the public, not for private industry, and so on. So they can, they can have a very big role here, in addition to the courts is the other part of checks and balances in the way our Constitution is designed. So when, when voters are considering candidates, what should they be looking for if they want to support science and science-based policies? They should be looking for someone that has some independence to raise issues that are of concern to them, regardless of their party platform. 
they should be looking for someone who's willing to turn and ask advice from scientists and ask advice from other experts. I know, you know, a lot of people have sort of said, well, the expertise is no longer valued. I just don't believe that's true. I mean, you wouldn't hire somebody to do your plumbing if they didn't have some expertise in plumbing and electricity or building your house. So it doesn't make much sense to me that people would say, no, I don't care about expertise anymore. Um, so you want your candidates to say, I'm going to go and ask, you know, independent scientists, you know, what does the evidence say? Um, in addition to listening to constituents, I think that um, voters in candidate forums and in letters should be looking for that strength of independence to ask the questions um, that are needed to formulate a policy position, not just come forward with some dogmatic position, and certainly not to assert that there are alternative facts or some such nonsense like that. And we do actually on our, on our website, we have uh, a list of sample questions that you can ask candidates on different on different issues. Um, and on Science Rising, which is a, something that we participate in at sciencerising.org, there's events all around the country um, that uh, different science uh, groups and groups interested in science are organizing in advance of the election where you can express your views and have an opportunity to meet in candidate forums and other, other things at a local level. Most importantly, people need to vote. Right. Exactly. You know, we have very, very low voting rates. We have very high voting barriers in too many places. Those need to be overcome. Um, and people really need to get out and vote um, because otherwise you get, you know, the government that you ask for. So this is what we're asking all our listeners to do. Get out and vote. It's exactly what I think we should do. Ask people to get out and vote. Become informed and get out and vote. Andy, thanks for joining me. And um, we'll be chatting after the election. Thank you. I enjoyed it. And now it's time for This Week in Science History with Katie Love. While October 14, 1947 is most often remembered as the day that Chuck Yeager broke the sound barrier, a hundred miles away in Los Angeles, another milestone was being passed. That's the day the Los Angeles County Board of Supervisors created the first regional air pollution control agency in the United States. In the 1940s, air quality in Los Angeles was so bad that during one smog incident in 1943, which cut visibility to three blocks and left residents' eyes stinging, Los Angelinos first suspected a chemical warfare attack before it became clear that pollution was the culprit. Air quality issues like this helped lead to the Federal Air Pollution Control Act of 1955, the first federal legislation that involved air pollution. More legislation followed, bringing us to where we are today, under the protections of the Clean Air Act, which is enforced by the Environmental Protection Agency. Unfortunately, the Trump administration continues to try to roll back critical safeguards under the Clean Air Act. And what about enforcement? Well, UCS recently filed a Freedom of Information Act request to help us identify changes in the number of EPA staff working on enforcement and compliance. Took a while to get the answer, but the overall results are even worse than we suspected. 
In EPA headquarters, at least 73 staff at the Office of Enforcement and Compliance Assurance left the office, and only four were hired between the start of the Trump administration and late July 2018. The EPA has also lost further enforcement staff at the regional level. That means that many fewer people are out there assuring that pollution is monitored and polluters are living up to their responsibilities under the law. It means that the EPA has taken a step backwards on protecting the health and environment for workers, communities, families, for you. What's more, the leadership of the EPA wants to turn away from enforcement overall to encouraging compliance through voluntary measures and so-called compliance assistance. Pardon our skepticism here. Most Americans wake up and breathe comfortably every day because we've enjoyed decades of strong, science-based clean air policies that are actively enforced. If the leadership at the EPA won't do its job, the rest of us need to speak up for clean air and the science that helps us protect it. Our lungs depend on it. Well, that's it for this episode of the Got Science podcast. Special thanks to Dr. Andrew Rosenberg. This Week in Science History by Katie Love. Editing by Omari Spears. Music by Brian Middleton. Research and writing by Pamela Worth. Our executive producer is Rich Hayes, and I'm your host, Colleen MacDonald. Thanks, and come find me on Twitter at GotScienceUCS, and make your plan to vote now. See you next time.